Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here at Soma. And <laughs> hey, hey. Um, wow, I feel very welcome this morning. Um, yeah, so I'm excited to teach this morning. Uh, I really enjoy it every time I get to get up here and share with you guys. Um, and I'm going to try and keep it pretty light this morning. We're just going to talk a little bit about pain, fear, oppression. You know, these very light topics we experience on a daily basis, most of us. Um, and it's probably different for all of us um, what, where your mind goes when you hear that kind of prompting. For some of us, it's chronic pain in our bodies. Um, for others, it's very severe disabilities. Some of us have mental illness or just things that we wrestle with that continually come up in our day-to-day life. Um, emotional issues, uh, circumstantial suffering in the world around us, uh, systemic oppression that is just kind of the world we live in. Regardless of where your mind goes when we think, think about um, pain and fear and what oppression means in your daily life, um, there's some good news this morning as we get into this. Uh, because the, the way that Jesus actually orchestrates this part in the story, he literally goes from one side of a lake to another, and then back to the other side, saying visibly with his actions that today the kingdom of God has come here also. So wherever your mind went just then, know that Jesus is coming there, that his kingdom has arrived. As we talked about at the beginning of the series, that the whole point of the Gospel of Mark is really summed up in those first few verses. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near enough that you can touch. So specifically this morning, um, we're going to look at how we come to Jesus with these issues that we struggle with, uh, what happens in his healing presence, and lastly, what his restorative sending out of us looks like. So, if you'll turn with me, or look on the screen, we'll be in chapter 5 of the book of Mark today. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. 
And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened, to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and who had spent all that she had. And it was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to to him, You see the crowd pressing in about you, yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray for us as a community this morning and... I know we come with all kinds of different experiences and stories, um, Jesus, but I also know that you are sufficient for every story and that you have entered in, um, you have experienced pain and suffering um, 
in every way beyond our imagination. Um, And so we know that you know us in the midst of our pain and that you have shown that you care, that you're not standing distant apart from us. And so, Jesus, we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning, uh, speaking to our hearts, um, producing the healing work that you want to do in our midst this morning, and drawing us out to um, hope and trust in you. I pray all this in your name. Amen. So first, how do we come to Jesus? We see three different versions in the story today, three different um, individual stories that may or may not resonate with you. Uh, First, there's the man from the tombs. He's flailing and hostile. It says, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And it's interesting because we think of evil being repelled by the presence of Jesus, but he's actually drawn to Jesus. He comes immediately to him. He actually runs, it says. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran ran and fell down before him. He falls down before him chaotically, violent, flailing about, yet needy, knowing his need. Many of us know that manic feeling where you're angry, you're upset, you're also excited, you don't know what you need, you don't know what that solution is for whatever it is you're going through. And he cries out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And I know I've had a similar tone with God where I'm like, why, why are you doing this in my life? Like, this is not what I need right now. Why are you making me go through another season of having to find a new job and not knowing whether I'm going to have a job tomorrow? Um, what is it that you want with me, Jesus? Or maybe more gently, it's our soul crying out, do you actually mean to have something to do with me? Do you care enough to let me come to you even? Underneath all of that rage, do you really care? And others of us are like the woman in the crowd who doesn't come violent and flailing. She comes fearful and timid. She suffered so long in her body physically. She comes timidly. She doesn't really want to be noticed. She doesn't really know probably who in the crowd knows her situation. Um, And she suffered so greatly, it says, at the hand of many um, physicians, spending all that she has and getting no better as a result. And so maybe her touching him is a way of her controlling the situation. Like, all those physicians, they hurt me. I subjected myself to them, and it led to deeper pain. So maybe if I am the one reaching out for him, this will go differently. I don't know if you guys ever find yourself tailoring the access you give to Jesus. We're like, well, I don't really want you coming into my whole life, just this one little area that if that could be sorted out, that'd be really great. Um, We're too afraid to trust him with what that might really mean, I think, a lot of times. But desperately, she reaches for him. She's like, I know I need something. I need to be healed. Others of us are like Jairus, the, the religious leader, begging earnestly for help. There's no pretenses. It says, seeing him, he fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He comes begging him. He's not trying to hide. He's humble. His daughter's dying. What else does he have to do? He wants her to be made well and live. See, Jared's story curiously bookends 
the story of the woman, almost intentionally amping up that tension. Like, we just heard that his daughter was at the point of death. We know that she's slipping away. How impatient he must have been as she stops to talk to this woman in the crowd and stops to engage with the people pressing in around him. I don't know if you, you do, but I definitely find myself having timelines for Jesus acting. Like, I need... Next week, I need to know this about what's happening in the future. And once I know that, then I can... I've actually made... I don't know if you guys ever do this. You make little agreements with God. Like, when you take care of this, then I can actually focus on being missional and caring for other people. But right now, I need to focus on this uncertain situation in my life right now, this, this situation of pain. And just then, he gets word. Time's up. They took too long. She's dead. All is lost. But something happens to each one of them in Jesus' presence. They each have their own unique experience. For the first man, from the tombs, Jesus asks him a question. He says, what is your name? And in Hebrew culture, names had a little different meaning than they do for us. It's more than just a... uh, something you look up in a baby book or something that seems to sound cool. Um, in all the way back to the creation account, when something is given a name, it's given a purpose. And so by Jesus asking him, what is your name? He's asking, who are you? What is your purpose? A person naming an object or a thing or an animal gives its, its identity. And the man actually calls Jesus by name Prior to that, I don't know if you caught that. He says, uh, Son of the Most High God, Jesus. And it seems like he's showing reverence, but I think underneath that, it's actually a power play. He's saying, I know who you are. Don't tell me. I know who you are, and so I'm in control of the situation. I know what you're capable of. Don't, Don't do anything beyond what I allow you to do. And we might expect Jesus to kind of one-up him to say, well, you're this, this demon or you're that unclean spirit and kind of trump his, his power play. But that's not what happens in the story. Instead, Jesus asks him, what is your name? He says, I want to know you. I want to hear from you who you are, what it is that ails you, what you're really going through right now. I'm not going to try and... Uh, abuse you and chain you up the way many others have. I want to hear from you about your struggle. And I think that man's, the man's response resonates deeply for many of us. What he says is, my name is Legion, we are many. See, if, if someone asks you to name the sources of your pain and your fears, the times when you feel oppressed you'd probably say, how long do you have? Like, we could be here a while. I know I would. Um, We have all these things that kind of cycle through our soul on a daily basis. A multitude of ways that you feel hurt, that you hurt others as a result of that pain. Ways that you feel alienated from God or yourself or others. Uh, The way C.S. Lewis Lewis describes it is, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, A harem of fondled hatreds, my name was Legion. And as you hear all this, you may think to yourself, 
well, I thought we were talking about demon possession. Like, what does this have to do with, like, my mental state? And the interesting thing about sort of the worldview of the Bible is that spiritual and physical realities are never separate. Jesus doesn't say that earth's passing away and you're headed to heaven. He says, no, there will be a new heavens and a new earth coming. So our future reality is both physical and spiritual. And our current suffering is also both physical and spiritual. And I think it's evident in our broken world systems. You can see demonic forces and intentions playing themselves out on the world stage all the time. And I'm also don't hear me saying that every mentally ill person has a demon, because it's just not that simple the way that scripture handles this issue. Um, But the point of all this is that regardless of the source of your pain and suffering, is that nothing escapes the the, uh, the reaches of Jesus' kingdom. And maybe you've like me, wondered at the really strange picture that comes after this, the way that he heals. Like, he doesn't just say, okay, come out of the man. The whole thing with the pigs, everyone says, What's, why, why the pigs? What did the pigs do wrong? <laughs> but uh, I think it's like, the more I thought about it, it's a really telling display because the effects of the demon, or the unclean spirit, as it's called in the passage, is actually worse in the pigs than it is in the man. Or rather, in the pigs, you see the actual frenzy that's going on inside this man. So, we're probably all familiar with the cultural response to seeing someone who is clearly out of their mind. You've, you, know, you don't have to go too far in L.A. to find a homeless person who's probably schizophrenic or has other struggles they're going through. And so what's the cultural response? It's avoidance, which we see here. They send them to the tombs. Sometimes in really severe cases, it's physical binding, where they bound them in chains. Um, And there's also a dehumanization where we define these people by their manifest struggles. Now you are a schizophrenic homeless person. You're no longer human. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about this that that's one of the most demonic things that we can do in our culture. At at every level of severity, even to the person who struggles with mild anxiety or mild depression, saying, oh, well, they're just a depressed person. They're just an anxious person. What you're saying is the kingdom of God has not gone there, which is a lie. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't avoid him, and he doesn't define him by a struggle. Instead, he fulfills the prophet Isaiah who said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, in Jesus' healing presence for this man and for us, that meant he was liberated and we are liberated from captivity of every kind. And our humanity is restored. 
We're no longer defined by our struggles, and we're no longer alienated. So the next experience of Jesus' presence is a little different for the woman in the crowd. She sees healed instantly as soon as she touches him. But that's not the end of the story. As soon as Jesus turns around looking for her, she's flooded with this fear. Do I come forward? What's that going to mean for me? What if he calls me out? What if he just outs me to everyone and, and tells them about what I've been going through and they have to withdraw from me because of, uh, because of the laws about um, uncleanness in, in the Jewish law? Or worse, maybe he demands something of her. Maybe he says, well, you, I provided that service for you, so now you belong to me. Now you have to do whatever I say. What if he actually oppresses her more than all of those physicians who hurt her more than help her? It says, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She couldn't deny that he had healed her, and she had to come to him. She's still afraid. She falls down before him, and she just, she just bursts with everything about her life, everything that's happened to her, everything that... She's been suffering through and admitting, yes, I touched you. I knew that if I could just reach out and touch you, I would be made well. And I think some of us are afraid of coming this way because it's kind of humiliating a little bit. Uh, we have to be vulnerable. We have to say, Jesus, I, this is who I am. I need you. I'm, I'm not anything but this, but you have the power to heal me. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, in the midst of her trembling, he calls her daughter. He gives her an identity. Or he reminds her of it, rather. Not only does he heal her physically, he affirms her. He transforms that timidity, that sense of fear of not knowing what's going to happen if she really opens herself up. He transforms it to trust and assurance when he affirms her as daughter. It says, go in peace, be healed of your disease. And finally, what happens to Jairus in Jesus' presence? See, if you remember where we left him, he just found out his daughter was dead. He's grappling with that reality. And Jesus, seeing his pain, says, do not fear, only believe. This other woman's fear has just transform- been transformed to trust. So being reminded of that, he's saying, this can happen for you too you can also find trust, only believe. Jesus then goes to where she is, and when he tells the mourners the child is not dead but asleep, they all laugh at him, which seems like a not that uncommon of a response. If you know you believe this, people there are probably the same as we are today. Um, but I think it reveals a companion that lies under the, surface, under the surface to our fear and our sadness. See, I think for a lot of us, that kind of like hope, that exuberance, that just enthusiasm that maybe things can be better, maybe Jesus is actually making all things new, that can seem a little embarrassing, I think, for some of us. Or it can seem shameful, like, what if I get proved wrong? What if someone puts me to shame and I, I, I lose my sense of hope or what if, what if I just feel exposed by it? See, we disguise 
our fear and our sadness under cynicism a lot of times. I know I do. The question, can he really bring life out of death, becomes sarcastic. Yeah, right. Let's see him do it. And we lose that hope. We lose that trust. See, all we want is what Jairus wants. We just want to be made well and to live. But that belief can seem unattainable. Can he really? Does he really? See, over those fears, through that cynicism, and in our despair, hear the words of Jesus this morning. He says, Talitha kumi, little one, I say to you, rise up from your fear, from your sadness, from your pain. Death is undone. Joy has dawned. Be well and find life in his name. So in Jesus' healing presence, we've seen he liberates us from spiritual, emotional, mental captivity, restoring our humanity. He physically heals and transforms our timidity into trust and assurance. And finally, he raises us from death to life, driving out fear and cynicism with hope. Amen. But what does that sending restoration look like? So it's easy to say, okay, but what's next? See, it's kind of strange to me that the most miraculous, at least on the surface, the most miraculous of the three, the raising of the dead, has the most mundane, normal next steps, if we look at it that way. It says, Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know of this and told them to give her something to eat. Did, did I miss something? Like, I thought we just saw a dead person come alive. Um, but see, he knew that overturning death was the tipping point for him. That as soon as people started talking about this and it spread into the surrounding regions, um, the religious leaders who had been tolerating his teaching would see their power and the broken, corrupt, demonic power structures of the society coming undone. And they would lash out like dying animals. But he had more to do. It wasn't his time yet. And the second part just really seems tacked on. Like it, Even reading it, it was almost funny to read it. Give her something to eat. Is that really like the inspiring end of the passage? Like, come on, give me something. But uh, it's like this whiplash, right? We had this supernatural event that happened. Someone was just healed. And now we're talking about dinner. (laughs) So, I don't know. It it underscores, I I think maybe it's helpful for us because it makes this attainable or makes this uh, relatable. See, creation is not fully restored yet, as I'm sure everyone here can attest to. It's like that Cinderella moment where the stagecoach is a pumpkin again, and her gown is rags. And that promise, is it really still 
being fulfilled. But I think it is a reminder of what N.T. Wright calls the overlapping ages, where we've seen in the story that the present evil age has been overturned, death has been undone, death was put to death on the cross, and the age of new creation has begun. We know that because Jesus walked out of the grave. Yet we still await a day when he'll come again to finish what he started. And it's in that hope that we, we wait. But for the healed woman, Jesus' words are a little different. He says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It's very simple. Go in peace, be healed. I'm not expecting you to start a new ministry. I'm not expecting you to uh, become this massively successful person and make, do something with your life now that it's been restored. Go in peace, be healed. And I think some of us just need to hear that over our lives this morning. Amidst all the struggle, all the chaos, all of the pressure you put on yourselves, all the pain, Today, he wants to heal your body and your soul through trusting in his name. For the man among the tombs, it's a command of proclamation. He says, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. Be restored to loved ones. No longer are you separated. You're You're a human. Those people who told you you were less than human were wrong. Tell them what the Lord has done for you, how he's shown you mercy. And it seems to me that we miss a lot of times that Jesus gives a pretty clear strategy for evangelism. Tell how he uniquely healed you become practiced in telling the story of how he liberated you from captivity. If you let your mind quiet long enough, you'll remember. Remember how he gave gave you your humanity back, how he made you more than the sum of your mistakes. And make sure they know that it's only by his mercy that you have been saved. It's only by his mercy that you are a new creation in Christ. You could not have climbed out of the pit by yourself. And it's interesting that he's the only one that we get to see obey. The others have more subdued responses. But he immediately goes to the Decapolis, which means the square conjoining ten different towns. It's like, I want everyone to know this who could possibly hear it. See, what he proclaims is not a private reality amidst the the narrative that our faith is for ourselves. A faith and an understanding and an ability to trust in someone that can completely transform the world is not a private reality. 
and never was meant to be. A faith that upends the broken world systems that oppress us and hurt us and has the ability to usher in and is ushering in the new creation was never meant to be kept silent. So I'm not sure what part of that we all needed to hear this morning. But one of my big takeaways in this, from this passage was I don't think there's a wrong way to come to Jesus. I think that we've seen pretty clearly here, you can come hostile, knowing you're enslaved, knowing you need to be set free, and he'll heal you. You can come timid, afraid of what that will really mean for your life if you let him into those locked doors. And your fear will be transformed into trust. You can come cynical. You can come as a mourner saying, death reigns and that's all there is and he will drive you to resurrection hope. So this morning, do you hear him asking? Do you hear his voice? Little one, do you want to be well? Arise. Do not fear, only believe. Go in peace. Be well. Sing the mercies of he who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, for us so that we would know that you care about our needs and that nothing escapes your sight. And you care about our pain and our fears and our struggles on this earth, even the ones that we do to ourselves. So Jesus, I pray that you would enter into all of our stories again this morning. How that your, your spirit would call us from death to life, from fear to trust, and from cynicism to hope. I thank you that you are doing that work in the world around us, uh, deposing broken things and making beautiful things out of them. I pray that you would do that in my life, in the life of everyone here, in the life of our church, in the life of our city, our country, and the whole world. Jesus, I thank you for your presence. I pray all this in your name.